are beginning again with the confession of faith in Sunday school. Uh, Jason and I, when we discussed the merge and teaching and preaching, we both agreed that the confession in terms of instruction, and especially in Sunday school, should really take pride of place. Um, not that we don't allow for other studies at times. I mean, we just had a, a, a topic on creeds and confessions. Jason led us through that. But in terms of the main diet of the church, uh, really the confession of faith, I would say that's really one of the benefits of, of being part of a confessional church. Um, I don't mean to throw any other churches under, under the bus, but, it, but for us and for others and other traditions similar to ours, the confession is not just something like we add on our website, nor is it even just something, though more substantial, that we all subscribe to. It's something that plays an active role in the life of the church, and, and that's something we want to keep doing as well. Um, and so, you know, we will uh, go through Sunday school, we'll, we'll keep going through the confession, and then when the time you're, by the time you come to the end, you start all over again, and that's okay. I began teaching through it when I first came to Texas in 2019. I only made it two-thirds of the way through the confession, so that was in about four years. You can imagine to teach the whole thing and take your time with it, maybe five to six years. By that time, there's probably new people in the church that have never heard some of this stuff. Um, for some of you today, perhaps uh, imagine much of what we might say may be new. There will be some of you who have heard it many times but have also forgotten again, and so it's a good refresher. And I can also say personally, th those who teach grow in their own understanding of theology and confession, and, and really my hope is, you know, um, I remember when I first came, some of, the, uh, some of the church members were so sweet, and they said, have you ever thought of collecting this into a book and then publishing it one day? And I'm like, oh, Lord, maybe before I die, after I've taught through the confession so many times. But I look back, and, and if that were the case, I would have to retract chapters. I would have to call the publisher and be like, yeah, don't just delete that one. I wasn't totally sure what I was teaching on there, though I thought I was. But so... That's kind of why we want to do this. Today, we are starting with chapter 1 of the Confession of Faith, which is titled, Of the Holy Scriptures. However, I thought it would be very worthwhile at the outset of this study of chapter 1 to first try to grow in our understanding and appreciation of what is called the light of nature, which is mentioned in chapter 1, paragraph 1. I think this will profit us for several reasons. First, the light of nature is mentioned in chapter 1, paragraph 1, and it is important to understand what it is so that we can understand how it is related to Scripture, how they are different, and yet how they are alike as well. But besides just being in chapter 1, paragraph 1, the light of nature is mentioned all throughout our confession of faith, either explicitly or implicitly, and it is a very important theological concept. It's interesting, it does not have a chapter of its own in our confession, yet if you were to gather up all of its references, it kind of has a chapter's worth of, of stuff. It's mostly related and kind of gets subsumed under larger discussions, but if you were to take that all together, it could in some ways um, have enough material for a chapter. So it's very important to understand, not just chapter one, but as we go throughout, and this is really the place to, to discuss it here, 
It is in the following sections, if you're taking notes. Chapter 1, paragraphs 1 and 6. Chapter 4, paragraphs 1 and 3. Chapter 10, paragraph 4. Chapter 19, paragraphs 1 and 4. Chapter 20, paragraph 2. Chapter 22, paragraphs 1 and 3. Explicitly or implicitly. So it is all throughout, it's kind of an undercurrent all throughout the confession. Furthermore, I want to touch upon the light of nature uh, because unfortunately there is a lot of not just poor teaching on it, but wrong teaching on it. Um, there are a lot of men who we might otherwise uh, praise as, as godly and, and good, but on this topic are creating a lot of confusion among the saints, and I would even say disturbing the peace of the churches in some sense. What I mean by that is that if some people, uh, if they had been exposed to that incorrect teaching, I've kind of experienced this, they were to hear some of the things I'm to say today, they might never come back to this church again. They might go, whoa, that is a congregation well on the way to, to Rome, or that is pagan. Um, and that's so unfortunate, because this is the confession. This is, this is the Reformed tradition. It is uh, true. We could say the light of nature, natural theology, not in and of itself, but, but by others, in a sense, has been abused um, this is something our confession addresses, actually. There are limitations of natural theology in the light of nature. On the other hand, what our confession does not do is outright reject it. I would say, um, you know, my, you might say, okay, okay, of course, you're going to say that. You're, you're in that camp. But I would say I know of zero Reformed Orthodox of the early and later period of Orthodoxy who would deny natural theology uh, in the sense that it is denied today. I just, I don't know who they are. It's spoken of as though they, they did, but I've never met those people, really. And so partly it is my hope to clarify some things on this topic so you can be informed on the historic position. And let me just teach you this. This is a, this is a Latin phrase, okay? You know when I come back to Sunday school, you're always going to have a Latin phrase. And some of you Latin scholars can maybe translate it, okay? Abusus non tolit usus. Abusus non tolit usus. Who, who knows what that means? Oh, come on. It's so easy. Come on. Abusus sounds like what? Abuse, non tolit. What is to? Tole lege? Yeah. Usus, use. Abuse does not take away use. Abuse does not take away use. It's a very important, uh, it's a very helpful understanding. Something can be abused for sure. That does not mean it has no use, and it should be entirely scuttered, okay? Scuttled, not scuttered. Um, if that were the case, you'd have to reject Scripture, because Scripture can be twisted and, and can be abused. Um, and so instead of rejecting the light of nature and natural theology and philosophy, we want to retain them in their proper place, okay? Well, let's get started on the light of nature in general. First, I want to read the Confession of Faith, um, chapter 1, paragraph 1. For any of you, again, who don't have a confession, we have them up here in the front. Uh, I hate to make people come up front, so it's like, you're the one, but if you want one, they're up here. You can have it. It's for free. Um, chapter 1, paragraph 1, and then we'll consider the light of nature. 
says the Holy Scripture is the only sufficient, certain, and infallible rule of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. Although the light of nature and the works of creation and providence do so far manifest the goodness, wisdom, and power of God as to leave men inexcusable, yet they are not sufficient to give that knowledge of God and his will, which is necessary unto salvation. Therefore it pleased the Lord at sundry times in diverse manners to reveal himself and to declare that his will, that his will unto his church, and afterward for the better preserving and propagating of the truth, for the more sure establishment and comfort of the church against the corruption of the flesh and the malice of Satan and of the world, to commit the same wholly unto writing, which maketh the Holy Scriptures to be most necessary, those former ways of God's revealing his will unto his people being now ceased. So you can see here on the one sense why the light of nature is brought in at the very beginning on a chapter about Scripture. This, this paragraph is really getting at the necessity of Scripture and in order to kind of understand its necessity for saving knowledge, in the background, you, you see the insufficiency of the light of nature. That's, that's why it's here. But what is the light of nature? The light of nature. Well, the light of nature, or you could call it the lumen naturae, the lumen naturalis, natural light, I would say is a broad term encompassing several different but related concepts. Okay, that doesn't tell me anything. The light of nature is a broad term encompassing several different but related context, concepts. Sometimes the confession will use the light of nature in a more restricted, narrow meaning. We'll see that a little bit today. But overall, it, it a lot follows under the umbrella of the light of nature. For the sake of simplicity, though, the sake of simplicity, first and foremost, we can say that the light of nature is equivalent to reason, broadly speaking. Reason, or ratio in the Latin. Richard Muller says of the light of nature, it is a term most frequently used as a synonym for reason, typically as exercised in grasping the revelation of God in nature, but also sometimes used as a synonym for natural revelation itself. Hey, listen to that. And if, again, if you want to read this, again, I can give you my notes later. A lot of these quotes are kind of long, but some of this stuff is, you know, you, you need to parse it apart. He says, the light of nature is a term most frequently used as a synonym for reason, typically as exercised in grasping the revelation of God in nature, but also sometimes as a synonym for natural revelation itself. So it can refer to the faculty of reason in the mind, in the rational soul, and in this sense, we can say that which reasons, okay? It can also refer to natural revelation itself, either the revelation or you could even say the conclusions you come to, that which is reasoned upon, okay? So it can be subjective or objective. Similarly, the Dictionary of Scholastic Philosophy, uh, and I would say if you have Muller's Dictionary of Latin and Greek, I would also really get the Dictionary of Scholastic Philosophy. It's, it's very good. It's much broader in a lot of ways. They're good companions together. It defines natural light this way. You can hear the similarity to Muller. One, reason, or unaided reason in its activity by supernatural means of faith infused knowledge. Or two, 
principles known by natural reason. Did you hear that? Let me read it again. One, reason, or reason unaided in its activity by supernatural means of faith, or two, the principles known by natural reason. So again, on the one hand, it is reason itself. On the other hand, as it says, the principles known by reason. The, the thing that reasons and that which is known by reason. Okay? Now, it must be noted here, this is very important, that when we speak of reason being used to grasp God's revelation, to grasp principles of nature, we mean reason rightly used. People do not, they, they use their reason, they use their faculty, but not always correctly. What does Paul say? When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, and reason like a child, right? This is why it's, it's funny when you see little kids reason because of the things that they say, their, their reasoning is not correct, okay? So just because something has been reasoned, that doesn't necessarily mean we say, well, yeah, that's accurately understanding the light of nature, okay? It has to be right reason. The technical term for this, as I just said, is right reason or recta ratio, recta ratio. Muller defines it as follows. He says, right reason is a true and proper understanding referring to the human faculty of reason or to its proper use. Recta ratio is to be distinguished from the corrupt or distorted faculty and from rash or ungrounded assertions. Okay, let me read that again. Right reason i.e. true and proper understanding referring to the human faculty of reason or its proper use, recta ratio is to be distinguished from the corrupt and distorted faculty and from rash or ungrounded assertion. Okay, We'll see later. We're not going to get on this too much today, how, how Scripture and right reason are friends. Okay, And you'll, you'll, we'll have quotes of this. There is uh, an old meeting of particular Baptists at an association meeting in the 1600s, and they are writing to this group of men, and they say, you t- tell us the issues you have, and they say, we will judge it according to scripture and right reason, okay? So, you, and you see that used all the time when theologians are writing. We'll look at, I think, Owen and Nehemiah Cox down the road. Um, they are friends in a common cause, okay? We'll, we'll look at that later on. But at the outset, we can say just most simply, the light of nature is reason, broadly speaking, and in particular, right reason. And for this reason, it is not uncommon to find theologians blending the terms at times. Turretin speaks of the light of right reason. Okay, you see that very commonly. Any questions before we move on? Any questions? Some of this stuff takes a while to digest, and... Maybe listen to it a, another time as well. Okay. Moving further then, that's like the most broad. Let's, let's go down more to the particulars. Moving further into our definition, we can press it further into more distinctions. As we have seen in the definitions given by Muller in the Dictionary of Scholastic Philosophy, the light of nature can refer to the faculty of reason in man, that which reasons, and the natural knowledge arrived at by reason, that which is reasoned. Okay. Listen to what Turretin says. Turretin says, human reason is taken either subjectively, and he does not mean subjectively as we mean it today, 
um, in the sense of like, that's just your opinion, man, kind of thing. No, he means as the subject, okay? If you're, if you're diagramming a sentence, the subject is the one who's doing, right? He's, he's the action. That's how you learn it. Different from the object. I and the subject pick up the book, right? Subject and object. So he says, Human reason is taken either subjectively or that faculty of the rational soul by which man understands and judges between intelligible things presented to him, that which reasons, or objectively for the natural light both externally presented and internally impressed upon the mind by which reason is disposed to the forming of certain conceptions and the eliciting of conclusions concerning God and divine things. So just first notice again, Turretin breaks down reason into those two categories we've seen before, the subjective and the objective, that which reasons and that which is reasoned, right? The fruit of it, you could say, or even the revelation, um, which is then reasoned upon, and you could even say the conclusions to some degree, very broadly speaking. Um, But notice Turretin adds a few more categories here, and this is where we're going to branch out a little bit particularly as we consider the object, okay, the natural knowledge. He says, objectively, human reason can be the natural light both externally presented and internally impressed upon the mind by which reason is disposed to the forming of certain conceptions concerning God and divine things. So as far as God's revelation of himself in nature, on the one hand, they are externally present, How so? How so? How would you say we see see God revealing himself externally in nature? In creation, right? Exactly. Chapter 1, I would say creation in providence. Chapter 1, paragraph 1 says, Although the light of nature and the works of creation and providence do so far manifest the goodness, wisdom, and power of God, Externally, man sees the creation around him. He sees design. He sees purpose, goodness, wisdom, and power. And he knows there is a God. David says in Psalm 8, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, who have displayed your splendor above the heavens. And he says in verse 3, listen to this, When I consider your heavens... When with my rational soul, I look at that which is external to me, right? He says, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him and the son of man that you care from him? David in that is, we could say, well, we'll get to it in a moment. He's doing natural theology to some degree. He's contemplating upon the reflection, upon the creation. Or Paul says, which I believe you mentioned, brother, Romans 1, 18 through 20, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made. It is understood through what has been made, okay? So it's clear from creation. There is a God. He is good, powerful, and wise. 
But not only creation, but providence as well. Who can tell me what providence is? It's not just a great church name. Yeah, I would say providence, we could say, is God's governing of the creation he has made. Uh, we're not deists. We don't say he, he wound up the clock and then just let it do its thing. No, he created it and then continues to govern, and, and, and we see his wisdom and power and goodness even in that. This is why we read Acts 14, 16 through 17. He says, "...in the generations gone by, he permitted all nations to go their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without a witness." In that he did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. So things like rain, seasons, these point also to our good creator, right? So creation and providence are what Turretin is getting at when he speaks about things internally presented to man's reason, all right? However, he also mentions that which is, quote, internally impressed upon the mind. For the sake of simplicity, I would just say the law written on the heart, okay? I think that that is what the confession is getting at when it says in paragraph 1 of chapter 1, the light of nature and the works of creation and providence. I think it's kind of using it in a more restricted term to speak to that uh, internally impressed knowledge. This, too, is in the Scriptures as well. Romans 2, 14 through 15. Paul says, For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves. Even though they do not have the law, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. From these things, then, internal and external, Turretin says, reason is disposed to the forming of certain conceptions and conclusions concerning God and divine things, okay? There is not just this act, but there's like conclusions where you come to, oh, I can say these things about, this can be said about God from what I see externally and, and have uh, internally as well. Namely, as it says, goodness, wisdom, and power of God. It says those things manifested. That's what Turretin is calling the certain conceptions, conclusions concerning God and divine things. In essence, natural theology. Our confession does not use the term natural theology, but it does it. It just did it right now. It commented, it gave certain conclusions from nature about God. Now, depending on who you ask, natural theology could be a very, very bad thing you have to watch out for. There are people who would tell you, leave this church right now. This guy is taking you. He's going to subvert Scripture. He is going to uh, lead you to Roman Catholic stuff. It's going to be very bad. They will throw, of course, Aquinas under the bus. They will make him say things he never said. They will act as if 
natural theology was like his brainchild and like it never came, no one ever did natural theology before Aquinas and he's the end-all be-all of it. Um, they will say Thomas said you could be saved through natural theology. Um, first of all, let me just read you some Thomas, okay? Okay, Vishal paid me $20, so I would do this today, actually. <laughs> anyway, Thomas says in his Summa, the very first thing he says, answering the question, whether besides philosophy any further doctrine is required, what does he say? It was necessary for man's salvation that there should be a knowledge revealed by God besides philosophical science built up by human reason. He continues, It was therefore necessary that besides philosophical science built up by reason, there should be a sacred science learned through revelation, by which he means uh, special revelation, the Word of God, right? On the other hand, though, Thomas is not really the issue. It's such a, it's not even about him in so many ways. Uh, and let me, let me just say this as a total side note. Um, we think we are very open-minded today because we're nicer. Nice. Nicer. Okay? You read older writers and they're like, this damnable heresy, of the, and you're like, these guys are mean. Mean equals closed-minded. No. We are much nicer but we are not open-minded. And they are meaner, but they're more open-minded. And my proof for that is just read Reform guys as they do theology and interpret Scripture. They will quote Bellarmine, a God-forsaken Jesuit for crying out loud, like the arch, oh, everyone wrote against Bellarmine. And then you'll read them sometimes and they'll say, as Bellarmine says, you don't want to add a parenthetical statement, brother? Like, but you should be really, really careful, right? And then they'll write and, and say, you know, all the things wrong with him. They're not nice, but they're much more open-minded. We think we're more open-minded. I think we're much more closed-minded in a lot of ways. So just because, what, what if it came from Thomas and he said those things, and there are good things he says? Just throw everything out. No, no, no. That's not how... We should do theology. Okay. On the other hand, though, Thomas is not the issue. Another question is, where did the Reformed Orthodox stand on natural theology? The answer is they kept it in a very chaste and proper place, but they did not wholly reject it. Listen to Turretin. We all know is a rabid papist, right? He says, he asked the question, whether natural theology may be granted, like whether we can allow that to the table, he says, our controversy here is with the Socinians who deny the existence of any such natural theology or knowledge of God. The Orthodox, on the contrary, uniformly teach that there is a natural theology partly innate, internal, and partly acquired, external. He says the Orthodox uniformly teach. Johannes Heidegger Natural theology is a word about God from nature taught by the dictation of reason alone for, quote, what can be known about God is manifest, and he quotes Romans 1. Franciscus Junius. Natural theology is that which proceeds from principles that are known in relation to itself by the natural light of human understanding in proportion to the method of human reason. We could go on and on and on and on and on. Now, some will counter and say, well, I, I agree there's a natural revelation, but not natural theology. Don't say that. 
Don't say that. In some sense, you're even theologizing by admitting there is a natural revelation, like that by which God reveals himself. You just did it. Like, you can't escape doing it, right? But if theology is merely the reflection and contemplation of revelation, and Scripture affirms that that exists, they'll say, no, not natural theology. Natural theology is, and they'll give it a definition that the Reformed didn't use when they affirm it, to just wholly write it out, okay? With respect to those men, um, I'm, sure, I'm sure many of them are much godlier than I am in, in a lot of ways. Um, unfortunately, they're out of their depth in what they're writing, and they're just creating confusion in the churches. And I truly say this. I think I have met people who have come to this church. I have said something along these lines, and they never came back. That's the fruit of those books. So it is very practical, okay? Maybe they just... I didn't brush my teeth that day or something. I don't know. Maybe that's, that's, that's how I held myself out, right? Now, related to the concept of natural theology is what our confession calls natural worship. Natural worship, it says that. Natural worship, in a sense, is the fruit, the response of natural revelation and natural theology. Turn with me to chapter 22 of the confession. Chapter 22 of the confession. I think it's paragraph one. I forgot to write it, but I think it's paragraph one. It says, the light of nature, is that paragraph one? Okay. The light of nature shoes, or however they said that, shows that there is a God. Go ahead and take one. They're $5 each. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. It just went up, $10. Um, The light of nature shows that there is a God who hath lordship and sovereignty over all, is just, good, and doth God good unto all, and is therefore to be feared, loved, praised, called upon, trusted in, and served with all the heart and all the soul and with all the might. Wow. But the acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself and so limited by his own revealed will that he may not be worshipped according to the imagination and devices of men, nor the suggestions of Satan under any visible representations or any other way not prescribed in the Holy Scriptures. So notice what it's saying and what it's not saying. It says, on the one hand, from natural revelation, man not only sees that there is a God, but there's an impetus to therefore worship this God. This is essentially, again, what Romans 1 says, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. So pagans are condemned for not only having a knowledge, but a knowledge which they do not make use of in worshiping the true God. All men worship things. It's it's part of being a creature, right? However, their worship is corrupted and twisted. And so when we speak of natural worship, we do not mean that pagans worshiping whatever they call God are offering acceptable worship to God. No, the confession is clear that, quote, the acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself and so limited by his own revealed will 
he not, may be not worshipped according to the imagination and devices of men or any other way not prescribed in Holy Scripture, right? In special revelation. Nevertheless, there is a category of natural worship, natural religion. In fact, the confession uses this term. Look at paragraph 3 of uh, chapter 22. Paragraph 3 of chapter 22. Prayer with thanksgiving being one part of natural worship is by God required of all men. Now, why is this important? Should you tell your children to pray? Even though they're not believers? Yes. Yes, you should. You should. Is their prayer heard in in the sense that they are redeemed in Christ and God is their Father and all that if they're unbelievers? No, but ought they to pray? Yes. First of all, prayer is one part of natural worship. Can you guys think of any other parts? Time of worship. The Sabbath day, right? I would add fasting to this. We just read uh, last week, um, oh, what's his name? King Darius. What does he do? The pagan, what does he do when Daniel's thrown in the lion's den that night? He fasts and he prays, right? This is not a man who has read the Hebrew scriptures, but Muslims do that. Jews do that. All kinds do that. It's, it's something that's part of natural, natural religion, Okay. I would say the way we understand this is that there is an oughtness there. It ought to be done. It's kind of like good works in general, okay? Can the unregenerate do good works? No, no, in a sense, but not acceptable to God. Confession says works done by unregenerate men, although for the matter of them they may be things which God commands, and of good use both to themselves and others. They may help their neighbor take out their trash, okay? Yet because they proceed not from a heart purified by faith, nor are done in a right manner according to the word, nor to a right end the glory of God, they are therefore sinful and cannot please God, nor make a man meet to receive grace from God. So the unregenerate, they, they, they have no good works to speak of in that acceptable sense. They're all sinful but ought they therefore to conclude that they should not even try? No. That's even worse. It says, and yet there the unregenerates neglect of them good works is more sinful and displeasing to God. It truly is. I'm not trying to be, you know, cheeky. Damned if you do, damned if you don't. Whatever is produced by the unregenerate is damnable. It is sinful. And yet if they say, I don't want to, that is even more damnable. It's more sinful and displeasing to the Lord. In a similar way, we might, we, we, we might say that um, with natural worship as well. Okay? All right. Any questions? All right. You had your chance. Okay. Yes, sir. Uh, yeah, yeah, I would. No? Okay. Vishal says no. In a certain sense, I'll say yes, because I've not learned that yet, but we'll say no. Yeah, we're not on Vishal's level. That's okay. 
Common sense. Thank you, brother. All right. Let's continue on. Uh, While we affirm then that there is a natural theology, there is even a category that we refer to as natural worship, yet we affirm man, or we deny rather, man cannot be saved by this knowledge. Read again chapter 1, paragraph 1 of the Confession with me. It says, quote, The Holy Scripture is the only sufficient, certain, and infallible rule of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. Although the light of nature and the works of creation and providence do so far manifest the goodness, wisdom, power of God, as to leave men inexcusable, if they are not sufficient to give that knowledge of God and his will, which is necessary unto salvation. Turn with me again to chapter 20 of the Confession of Faith. You see, this, you see this idea several times throughout the Confession. Chapter 20, paragraph 2. This is interesting because uh, I, would, I would say several of the additions of the concept of the light of nature put in our, in our Confession are not in the Westminster. Because years have gone past since then on which you start to see uh, a spread, a greater spread of Arminianism and Socinianism, and they are addressing that. So there's, there's more in ours uh, and in the Savoy, we would say, than there is in the Westminster. But chapter 20, paragraph 2, says, This promise of Christ and salvation by him is revealed only by the word of God. Neither do the works of creation or providence with the light of nature make discovery of Christ or of grace by him, so much as in a general or obscure way much less that men destitute of the revelation of him by the promise or gospel should be enabled thereby to attain saving faith or repentance. So here, as I said, the confession, I'd say it's probably addressing Socinianism and remonstrance of its day. Who would reduce the revelation of the gospel down to a mere goodness of God revealed in nature? It's true, the goodness of God is revealed in nature. Our own confession says that. Might even say, in a sense, his mercy, right? Um, he sends rain on the ungodly as well as the godly, right? This is not a gospel revelation, however. Turretin explains it this way It is one thing to seek the favor and grace of God revealed through his word in virtue of his promises in Christ, another to seek an unknown God in the works of nature and providence. It is one thing to allow some knowledge of God as creator and preserver, however imperfect, corrupt, and obscure, another to have a full, entire, and clear knowledge of God as redeemer and of the lawful worship due to him. Natural theology has the former in that which may be known of God. Revelation alone, meaning special revelation, the word has the latter in the faith which is gained only from the word. So we acknowledge natural theology. We deny it is sufficient for salvation. It is historically untrue to say that those two things go together. If you are affirming natural theology, you therefore also must affirm that that salvation is somehow uh, approachable by it. Um, Our confession denies that. That That's not biblical. It's not historically reformed. But the confession is not done. Turn with me to chapter 10 of the confession. Chapter 10 of the confession, paragraph 4. 
Like I said, if you have, if you have a, a way to do a word search through the confession and you just type in like light, nature, you see it. You see it all throughout, okay? Chapter 10, paragraph 4. Others not elected, although they may be called by the ministry of the word and may have some common operations of the spirit, yet not being effectually drawn by the Father, they neither will nor can truly come to Christ and therefore cannot be saved. Much less can men that receive not the Christian religion be saved, be they never so diligent to frame their lives according to the light of nature and the law of that religion they do profess. You know, there are a lot of men and women that we could point out through history. We could say in, in a moral sense in a certain degree by, by, by their natural virtues, their accomplishments like far outweigh us in some ways. Um, who was it? Was it Pliny the Younger? Or was it Cicero or somebody who said, like, I was not raised, I, I, was, I don't exist to, like, hug my bedsheets and sleep in in the morning or something like that. I, I forget who said that. I want to say it's Pliny the Younger. Well, sometimes I, I feel like that's a great plan to do. Like, and he's, like, out. There's these stories of him. He's hunting. He goes hunting. And he also brings books with his servants to write his reflections while he's hunting. I'm like, I don't do that if I go duck hunting I don't bring a laptop with me. I'm just like, no, I'm, I'm not on that level, right? And yet, these people cannot be saved, and that's a really tough pill to swallow. Um, when you're doing evangelism or you're talking to unbelievers, that is a tough pill to swallow. I have known people who are beloved, highly esteemed, though they were not saved. I think of my grandfather, Carlos, Carlos's namesake, my love, absolutely revered by my family. He was, in many ways, a good man. If you want to get stabbed in the face by my family, tell them, you know, to some of them, quote this, you know, be he ever so diligent to, you know, live his life according to the light of nature. Um, that's, that's scandalous. In fact, I got in some hot water years when my grandma passed away and I was going to speak and I was going to say something to the effect of the grace of God because my, my grandma... Uh, I don't think any of my family is listening to this, um, was not highly esteemed like my grandfather was. I'll just say that. She had a lot of issues. And, and yet I reflected that in God's mercy, it could have been her who received Christ by faith. And my grandfather, no. Though the whole world would think, how dare you say that about both of them? Her receive forgiveness? Him not go to heaven? And yet that doesn't matter. It's, it's received by the gospel and not merely living according to the light of nature so on the one hand, we, de- we deny the light of nature gives a salvific knowledge, but it does give a degree of knowledge as well, um, and it is very important. Now, that is in regard to natural theology. As we'll see later on next week, we're going to branch out a bit more. The light of nature can be uh, understood even more broadly than that, and I would say our, we see our confession do that as well at times. Um, one man, for example, says this, perhaps more plainly, or no, I wrote this, perhaps more plainly, as one modern author writes. I don't know why I put quotations around my own words. They're so brilliant. He says, The light of nature, then, is an expansive category and has many uses. It is natural reason. And as such, it does not refer only to the limited knowledge of God we have from creation, but also to the knowledge of ourselves, of the world, of our family, country, moral law, mathematics, the laws of logic, language, grammar, history, politics, geography, biology, rhetoric. That too has a very important place uh, 
in, in the Christian life, in the life of the church. We'll see this in paragraph 7 of chapter 1 as well, um, when it talks about certain aspects um, of church government, I think. And what else? It says something else. Worship, is it? Something like that. That is governed by the light of nature and Christian prudence, okay? Um, it's, it's branching out, and we'll, we'll look at that. That'll, that'll be fun. We'll see Paul do it. Um, We'll see the scriptures do this in some sense when they say, go to the ant, you sluggard. Okay, well, what should I go to the ant about? What is he going to tell me? We'll, we'll look at that, okay? Um, that's it for now. I'm kind of wrapping up a little bit early. Any questions? What is that talking about? Um, that's talking, well, this, the, the Father or the effectual work of the Spirit. So this is where we talk about um, there's the external, the external word goes out, like the preaching, we could say the seed, right? And yet the Spirit must come and take that seed and bear fruit in the soul. So that is describing a person very much, and, and it'd be interesting to see. Um, it, I wonder if it, it actually uh, quotes Hebrews there. The person who is hearing many of the common operations, it says they've tasted the heavenly gift to some degree um, in, in the sense of the common operations of the Spirit, but not a salvific sense. And so, uh, though they have those things, and then when it switches to talk about the light of nature, it's talking about those who are really of a different religion. It says, uh, although you could apply it under both, but it says, or whatever religion they do profess, right? So, it's talking about the lack of effectual calling. Does that make sense? Okay. Tom? Right, which if you read the rest of paragraph one, it gets to that, the necessity then. And also chapter 20, I believe, on the extent of the gospel. It talks about the need, therefore, for Christ to be preached, right? Um, so. All right, well, let, yes, sir. We'll talk. We're going to have fun. Francis Turretin. Uh, Francis Turretin taught theology. Was he in Geneva? He was, oh, he was Italian. He was Italian-Swiss, and maybe French, too, because his son was Francois, I think. Turetini, I think. But we'll talk. He was a, he was a theologian, a Reformed theologian of late, later Orthodoxy. All right, let me pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, um, that your gospel has come to us, and that... Um, 
though through our lives we have damned ourselves by our rejection of you and your lordship, your sovereignty, by worshiping you according to our imaginations and the devices of men, yet your gospel has been preached and we have been redeemed. We thank you for this, Father God, that you have included us into this salvation, Lord. In the name of Christ we pray, amen. All right, you guys are dismissed, thank you.